It was 27 years ago, in June 1994, that the Walt Disney Company released a feature film entitled The Lion King. It's a story about a young lion named Simba who reclaims power in his homeland, the Pride Lands, from his evil uncle, Scar. If you know the story, Scar had usurped power from his brother, Mufasa, 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 you know. By killing him, he uh, lured Mufasa and Simba into the stampede of wildebeests, and when given the opportunity to save his brother, he throws him down a cliff, and Scar was obviously a troubled child. <laughs> now, something interesting about the film and the story is that all the characters, they have African names, primarily from the Swahili language, and so you might be interested to know that Simba, in Swahili, it means lion, because he's a lion. <laughs> Rafiki, in Swahili, that's the the sage of wisdom, that baboon. Rafiki in Swahili means friend. Nala, who becomes eventually the wife of Simba, that young lion cub at the beginning in Swahili, her name means gift or beloved, which, which certainly fits the story. Sarabi, the mother of Simba, uh, her name means mirage, an interesting choice. Pumba, the dim-witted warthog, his name means slow-witted or stupid. <laughs> and then you've got the trio of um, hyenas, hyenas uh, the comrades of Scar, right? You've got Shenzi, Banzai, and Ed. And in the Swahili language, they are, respectively, they are savage and skulk. And Ed means Ed. Now, Mufasa, this is not Swahili, it's actually of the Menazoto dialect in Africa. As you might guess, Mufasa means king. And so, you know, you might pause and you might wonder how you've got these two brothers. You've got Mufasa and then you've got his brother Scar. And Mufasa, he turns out to be this, this leader of leaders and he's the lion king and, and I mean, he's the, one of the key characters and then Scar, in contrast, turns out to be so bad, and you wonder, how does something like this happen? Now, now Scar's name in Swahili, it's, his name is not actually Scar, that's a nickname aptly given because of the scar slashed across his face. But his given name, if you kind of dig into the history, into the canon of the Lion King, as many are wont to do, you will find that Scar's actual given name is Taka which in Swahili means garbage. His parents named him garbage. So they have one son that they named Mufasa, king. Evidently high expectations. And the other, garbage. I mean, do we really have to wonder why Scar turned out the way that he did? His parents named him Garbage. Are you following this morning? Okay. Now, perhaps Scar became the thing that his parents named him. 
Perhaps he believed what they told him that he was. And as a result, he turns out to kill his brother, usurp power, and be so bad. Now, I, I understand this morning that this is just a silly example from a fictional story, but it really does illustrate for us the importance of what we speak over our children and over others generally. Because what we speak over others, they can become labels that impact the self-perception of those we speak to. And what we speak can define their direction. I recently heard a quote, and in many ways it was the inspiration for what I have to say this morning. And I believe that this is true. That children become what they are told they are. Children become not necessarily what they want to become. Children don't necessarily become what life might dictate that they could or should become. Children become what they're told they will become. What they told they are, they are. In scripture, the naming of children, it was not some arbitrary endeavor. When a parent named their child, they were giving them, giving them more than just a name. They really were giving them an identity. They were giving them meaning. And in modern times, we don't fully grasp this level of significance. Many today, we name our children because we like the way it sounds. Or we think, you know, we're going to name our child this because it's unique. Or maybe you kind of resist that trend. And I like this name because it's more classic. Some choose to avoid a name because it reminds them of that smelly kid from the third grade. Oh, we can't name them that. There was this kid I went to class with. We, re we, we might resist or pass on a name of a coworker that didn't treat us kindly or a boss that spoke ill to us. And so again, our naming conventions in the 21st century, they're somewhat arbitrary. We don't really put a ton of stock in names or significance, certainly not the way they did in Scripture. The names of individuals in your Bible, they often bear much significance and much meaning. In fact, when you're studying a biblical character, one of the first things that a person probably will do is look up the meaning of the name and thereby gain and glean greater insight into the story. When a parent named their child in Scripture, they were defining them in many ways, for better or for worse. Sometimes it was determined by a physical attribute at birth, or perhaps they were naming them based on current events or circumstances in their lives. Often there was a spiritual component, and parents many times were led by God to name their child something specific. And so time and time again in the Bible, we see names either becoming a launching pad that propels people into a future of hope and promise, or their name became a heavy weight that shrouded their life with pain and with fear. Because what was spoken over these individuals during the earliest moments of their lives, it impacted their direction and their destiny. And so we can look just at the three patriarchs of Israel. We don't have to go any further than that, and we can see examples of all of the above. We see Abram. Given that name, which means exalted father. And so it's no wonder 
that Abram would eventually become Abraham, given that name by God, which means the father of nations. Obviously, somewhere along the line, Abram believed what was spoken over him when he was just a child. Even when circumstances said, you're too old to have children. Sarah's too old to have children. Your promise can't come to pass. Evidently, Abram had somewhere in his spirit, no, 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 I am a father. And so he believed the promises of God, even in adversity. Abraham and Sarah's promise, the son that was born named Isaac, they named him that, and it means one who laughs or one who rejoices, which is kind of like a double meaning because Sarah, at one point, she laughed at the promise of God because she was so old. God said, why is Sarah laughing? That was her response. But God came through, and because he did, they named him Isaac, one who laughs. Really, God turned her laughter of scorn into rejoicing over God's faithfulness. It's all in his name. And then Isaac... With his wife, Rebecca, she gives birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the first to come out of the womb, and he was so hairy, and so they named him Harry. H-A-I-R-Y, Esau, that's, that's what his name means. Esau, and then Jacob comes out, and he is grabbing the heel of his slightly older brother, and so they name him Heel Grabber. That's what Jacob means. And the name Jacob, Heel Grabber, it carries the connotation of supplanter and deceiver, and so certainly not a desirable name. And he wrestled with it for much of his life. And we could spend the entire morning today going through the names of various Bible characters, and, and from these names alone, we could understand themes and elements and symbols from their stories. But let me just say to our parents that as fathers, as mothers today, we may not treat our children's names with as much significance as they did back then, but the principle still remains that what we speak over our children and over our families matters. And to everybody else in my hearing today, if that is not your calling or your lot in life to be a parent at this moment, let me just say that what we speak over others in general, it matters a great deal because our words have power. It was Solomon who said in Proverbs 18 that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. In other words, whether you sow seeds of life or seeds of death with your words, you will reap that harvest and you will eat its fruit. So be careful what you choose to speak. We have great power as fathers. We have great power as parents to speak life over our families to speak promise instead of pessimism over our children. Look at your neighbors say, speak life. Speak life. I've heard it said that the way we speak to our children, it often becomes their inner voice. Essentially, the words we speak to them and the way in which those words are spoken, they become the lens through which the next generation sees themselves. Be it a lens of confidence and courage and faith, or a lens of inadequacy and fear. What we speak matters. And so I'll say today that we have a weighty responsibility and a weighty opportunity to ensure that we are speaking life and encouragement over our children because I firmly believe that our children will become what they are told they are.
came across an article uh, that was presented by the Harvard Business Review. And, you know, my wife and I, Trisha and I, we will discuss parenting from time to time. And one of the things that has come up in conversation is this idea of if you're going to correct, if you're going to bring constructive criticism, you need to make sure that it is outdone by your, by your praise and by your positivity. And this is actually rooted in, in a study that was conducted, presented by the Harvard Business Institute re Review. And the article that they presented was, was called The Ideal Praise to Criticism Ratio. It was a study that was done, yes, in a business context, but it can apply across various relationships and interactions. And in short, they observed and studied various teams at one large company, and they found that, as you would expect, there were high-performing teams and average-performing teams and low-performing teams. And they found, first of all, that in all teams, if there was to be any progress made, if there was to be any success had, there had to be a willingness to share and receive criticism. We might call it negative feedback. It doesn't really feel good to receive it, but it's good for us. And so we understand that correction is imperative in relationships, certainly in parental ones. And we all need to be able, in whatever relationship, in whatever context, to receive correction. Because none of us have this figured out. Amen? I'm grateful for every once in a while somebody coming alongside me and explaining the way more perfectly. It helps me get better. Anybody else would testify to that today? And you would testify your spouse helps you with that sometimes? Praise the Lord. Negative feedback or constructive criticism, it's good because the article explains, number one, it has the ability to grab someone's attention. It is a proverbial whack on the head that gives us a dose of reality. Criticism. Correction, it's jarring. Number two, the article says that negative feedback, it guards a person against complacency. It challenges our status quo, which we all need at times. And thirdly, negative feedback is ultimately the only thing, the only thing that allows us to get better and overcome our weaknesses. When we hear feedback like, you know, you shouldn't do that. Or you need to improve in this area. We need those kinds of statements. You, you, you should try it this way because, because how you're doing it isn't correct. We need that. We don't just need people in our lives that cheer us on and pat us on the back. The yes men. And they go, yeah, 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 you're doing great as you run off a cliff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Congratulations. We don't need that. We need people to say every once in a while, you know, whoa, 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 slow down. you got to change. You're on the wrong path. You need to course correct here. We need people like that. And likewise, we don't just need parents who cheer on their kids and pat them on the back and try to be their best friend as they run headlong off a cliff into proverbial disaster. We need parents who are willing to stand for right living and for righteousness of God and for the principles found in the scriptures and say, whoa, 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 you need to slow down. You're on the wrong path. You need a course correction because this is life. This is hope. This is promise. We don't need just parents to just pat their kids on the back into oblivion. I'll say it like Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 29. The rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. 
And so what do we do? Verse 17, we correct thy son. And if you do so, he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. He would say it even stronger in Proverbs 13, that he that spareth his rod, that rod of correction, if you spare it, you hate your son. But he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. So I would say let's not be afraid to call our kids to a higher level through correction every once in a while. It's important. But the findings of this study are interesting to me because everyone in the study received correction. That was the baseline. If there was any success, they had that. But only certain groups had high performance metrics based on financial performance, based on customer satisfaction ratings. So what made the difference among the various teams? And the article reads, and I quote, the factor that made the greatest difference between the most and least successful teams was the ratio of positive comments. Things such as, I agree with that, or that's a terrific idea, compared to negative comments such as, I don't agree with you, or we shouldn't consider doing that, that participants made to one another. Negative comments could even go so far as just sarcasm, sarcastic remarks. And the average ratio for the highest performing teams was 5.6. That is, over five positive comments for every single negative one. The medium performance teams, they averaged 1.9, almost twice as many positive comments to negative ones. But the average for the low performing teams, they stood at 0.36 to 1. Which means they had almost three negative comments for every single positive comment they received. And from this study, they suggest, and many apply it to different arenas of life, that an ideal praise to criticism ratio is five to one. Five words of positivity, praise, affirmation to every word of constructive criticism or correction. And yes, it's applicable in business, but this is the human condition. The reason it applies there is because it's made up of people who work there. And many who offer parenting advice and insight, they have latched onto this principle and they agree and they share that positive feedback and words of love and affirmation must be paramount. And if we are going to offer criticism and correction, I say let it be overwhelmed and outdone by words of affirmation, words of encouragement, and words of positivity. Because that's how we make greater progress in our families and for the kingdom. You see, I understand today that it's really easy as a dad, as parents, to be reactionary and respond with intensity when our kids are misbehaving. Because there's just some times that you need them to stop. Stop it! Anybody been there? But let me just tell you this, if the only time we open our mouths is in times when our children are acting out and we say words like, stop, no, don't do that, you can't do that. If those are the only words, then I say we fall short and we miss the opportunity to guide our children. If others only ever hear negative feedback and never positive reinforcement, if our kids only ever hear us speak words of correction and rarely words of affirmation, perhaps they will begin to believe that all they are capable of doing is wrong. 
Because that's the only time they hear us speak. Our encouragement must outdo our correction. I believe that today. I remember a few years ago I heard, uh, you've heard of Mark Lowry, sang with the Gaither Vocal Band, Christian comedian in the 90s back in the heyday, right? We had the VHS tapes to prove it. I heard a story he told, you know, he was always going on about how he was such a hyperactive child and misbehaved like it was going out of style. And his mother, he, she was a patient woman and she raised him the best that she could and, and she was prone to, you know, bring out the rod of correction, if you know what I mean. But he told this story how every night his mother would tuck him into bed and despite his hyperactive demeanor and his bad behavior, his mom would tuck him in and say, Mark, God is going to use you to do big things every night. Were there moments of correction? You bet. We've all heard the stories if you've been a fan. But every night she would speak words of promise, words of encouragement. Mark, I believe in you. Now, I was a parent at the time. I still am a parent, of course, but I, we only had Rosie. I thought, this is so good. I, I need to try this. So I went in, I believe, that very night, and I tucked in Rosie. We read our Bible stories. We said our prayers. So here we go. I said, Rosie, God's going to use you to do big things. She looked back at me, and she said, what if I want to do small things? Mary, Mary, quite contrary. <laughs> Time to try a different line, I guess. But isn't it true? We need to be willing to speak encouragement over others. So much of parenting, it seems, can just be wrapped up in trying to get your kids to behave well and act right. There's an interesting verse, Hebrews 10, 24. It says, well, he, the writer says, well, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. The goal here, we, we were trying to provoke one another. That's the King James rendering. Provoke one another toward love and good works. How can we get better action out of others? I think certainly that's a question that parents have wrestled with at times. But he goes on and he says in verse 25, a familiar scripture, here's the answer, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And we love to quote verse 25 and I don't think it's inappropriate to do so. We quote it to reinforce the importance of going to church and being faithful to the house of God and that's, that's wonderful and that's right. But in context, Meeting together is just a means to an end. And the end that we try and desire to achieve is the end of encouraging one another. So he said meet together, but it's for the purpose of encouraging one another. And I would go even further and say that the encouragement itself is also just a means to an end. Our encouragement one to another is that thing that spurs one another on toward love and toward good deeds. And so if you've ever wondered, how in the world am I ever going to get little Johnny or little Susie to start acting right or not act out in public or whatever? 
Perhaps the principle could be applied. Encourage your children. Speak life. And it will provoke them, spur them on to love and good works. How do we help others around us change their behavior? How do we help our peers, our coworkers, and yes, our children? How do we help them change their behavior, step on into right living and good works? He tells us it's encouragement. Encouragement. I believe in you. You've got this. I know it's difficult right now, but the, the sun is going to shine tomorrow. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. That's words of encouragement. We, we, we sometimes, we neglect the benefit and the power in simple words like that. But there's power in them. We must be people who choose to speak life and encouragement. There's enough negativity out there. There's no shortage of hatred, anger, animosity, resentment, and division in our world today, all being hurled around in all kinds of mediums. There's no shortage. So I say let the church be a place and let our homes be places where we provoke one another toward love and toward good works through encouragement. Amen? How many agree with me today? Let the church be a place like that. Let our homes be places where we speak life instead of death. And lest you think this is just trying to implement the power of positive thinking, or, or maybe you just think this is the same as some self-help book you could buy at chapters. Let me challenge that today and say that when we choose to encourage one another, it's not all of that. It is a recognition that our words have power to change the direction and the destiny of others. This is the nature of God. Paul said in Romans chapter 4 that God is one who calls those things which be not as though they already were. So God can look at a life that is bound and depleted and, and, and steeped in sin and debauchery and he can call that person delivered and he can speak and say they are whole and they are healed and they are liberated by the power of the name of Jesus. That's the nature of our Heavenly Father, to look at people and call things out of them, even though they aren't there right now, or they're lying dormant, or they're, they're diminished. And so as earthly fathers, I say, we can take on that mantle of responsibility. We have that opportunity to do this same thing for our children, to call things out of them in their life, and to not speak to the problem, but speak to their potential and use language of promise instead of pessimism, to recognize and address their giftings with encouragement. And through affirmation, cultivate their talents and help them believe in their God-given abilities. It takes you believing in them and then speaking them over them for them to believe in them. There is power in calling things out of the next generation. Things that have not yet fully manifested, but we foster them with what we speak over them. Everyone say, speak life. We've only got two choices, and I choose to speak life. As for me and as for my house, we will serve the Lord. Speak life. This is a true story. There was a man who was failing at a high school, and he struggled growing up. He was raised by a single mother in the U.S. Midwest. He promised his mother 
despite the fact that he was flunking, she wanted him to take the SAT test, which is a standardized test, perhaps in the U.S. I don't know if it's here, but it was there. He didn't expect to get a good score, and probably his mother didn't expect very much either, but she wanted him to take it, and so he did. And his score came back, potential of a perfect score of 1,600. There's two components, each worth 800 points. And so out of 1,600, this young man got 1,480. Which, which out of 1,600, to even get 1,000 or higher was, was an, a wonderful, awesome feat, but, but he got 1,480. And his mother, after hearing this, she confronts him and says, son, did you cheat? He said, mom, I tried. I couldn't cheat with all the little bubbles you had to fill. I couldn't cheat. I tried, mom, but I didn't. I promise. And so given his test results and his score, he realizes that, that he's smart. I'm smarter than I'm behaving. I'm smarter than what I thought I was. And so he decides to start attending classes. He stops hanging out with his old crowd. He, he, he starts getting treated slightly differently as a result of these choices by the teachers and the kids. They seem to notice. And, and so he graduates high school. He attends community college. He goes on to Wichita State and eventually to an Ivy League school. He would go on to become a successful magazine entrepreneur, having a great job and a good income. And you might think, well, this kid was smart. He just needed the test to reveal that and to unlock his potential. But that is not the story. Because what comes next is really the important part. Twelve years later, the man gets a letter in the mail from Princeton, New Jersey. He doesn't think anything about it, but the next day his wife says, are you going to open this letter? And he does. It turns out that the SAT board periodically reviews their test-taking procedures and policies. And they found discrepancies, and they found that he was one of 13 people sent the wrong SAT score. His actual score was 740. People say, people would say to him that his whole life changed when he got the 1480, and in part, they are correct. But the question is why? The reason is because he started acting like a person with a 1480. And he started doing what someone with a score like that does. He stopped cutting class. He stopped hanging around with his peer group that was dragging him down. He started applying himself. And it was all because a piece of paper told him that he was smarter than he thought he was. And because he was told that, he believed that, and he behaved as such. It wasn't that he was smart. He got a 740 but he started acting like a 1480. He started believing what that standardized test score that didn't even belong to him told him that he was. Children will become what they are told they are. How much more can our words shape the futures of our children and our families if we will but speak? Speak promise. Speak encouragement. Speak life. Music, join me. I'm almost finished. There are many times in scripture where parents named their children based on undesirable circumstances. And this name that they would give in many ways, it shaped the identity 
of their offspring. And in many ways, it determined their future. Many examples, just briefly, for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, Eli's daughter-in-law, Eli the, the priest, his son Phinehas, her wife, she hears that the Philistines have prevailed over Israel and her husband's been killed and the priest Eli, her father-in-law, is dead and the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. And in this moment of despair, she goes into labor and she's about to die. But just before she dies, with probably her dying breath, she calls out a name for her son and she names him Ichabod. The glory is departed. She literally defines her son and his future by a present difficulty. We need to be careful not to define our future by present circumstances. It might be challenging right now. We might face adversity right now, but we can choose to speak life instead of death. This boy would grow up as a, with a constant reminder to himself and to those around him of a moment when God's people failed. What a life. A life defined by failure. Ichabod. Where's the glory? There's a story in the Old Testament found in, I believe it's in 1 Chronicles. It's a guy by the name of Jabez. And the Bible says that Jabez was more honorable than his brethren. And his mother called his name Jabez. But watch this saying, because I bear him with sorrow. Jabez was named by his mother because of a difficult birthing process, and she named him as such. Jabez means to grieve. Jabez means sorrowful. What an identity. And you may have heard of Jabez by, because of the famous book, The Prayer of Jabez. It's one verse in scripture, overlooked probably by many, made famous by the book. But Jabez prayed and he called on the God of Israel saying, oh, that thou wouldst bless me indeed and enlarge my coast and that thine hand might be with me and that thou wouldst keep me from evil that it may not grieve me. And God granted him that which he requested. This is interesting to me because Jabez through prayer refuted his identity. And he asked God to not let his life be afflicted by grief, the very thing that he was identified as, the very thing his mother had named him, grief, sorrow. And God granted him that which he requested, which is powerful. But this was something he had to wrestle through with God in prayer. And we don't want to speak something over our children that becomes an identity for them to wrestle against and a hurdle for them to fight through for the rest of their lives. We need to be careful with what we speak over our children. I've already mentioned Jacob here this morning. Jacob grew up with the identity of supplanter and deceiver. And as a result, he became what he, told, what, what he was told he was. He became a deceiver, a supplanter. He deceived his brother and his father in order to receive the birthright and the blessing. He knew what it was like to grow up wrestling with what was spoken over him and the ensuing identity. So it's no wonder that years later when his wife Rachel is giving birth to their second son, in a moment of sorrow during childbirth that will claim her life, with her dying breath, Rachel, she names the boy Benoni, son of my sorrow. Quite a name to have. 
quite an identity to carry. The Bible doesn't say that Jacob rushed in in the moment. The Bible simply says in Genesis 35, 18 that Jacob refused to call the boy by that name. He refused to call him son of my sorrow, but rather he called him Benjamin, Benjamin, son of my right hand, son of power. Thank God for a parent like that. Oh no, I know how this goes. I know what it's like to wrestle against a bad name. It's not Benoni, it's Benjamin. It matters what we speak over others. And we must be careful not to speak ill over them because of present difficulties, because of adversities in our lives. We must speak promise and life. I close today with one passage of scripture in Luke chapter 1. In Luke 1, we read about a priest named Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. Both were righteous before God, but they were also childless. And Elizabeth, not only was she barren, she was very old. And one day while he was carrying out his priestly duties, an angel appears to Zacharias. And in verse 13, the angel said to him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Here's the name I want you to speak over your son, John. It's an incredible moment where the angel of God has pronounced promise over Zacharias and his wife. You're going to have a son. Something impossible is going to happen. And the angel also declared that many would rejoice at his birth. The boy would be great in the sight of the Lord. He would have the spirit of Elijah, and he would make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This was John. There was such promise spoken by the angel, and it was all summed up in his name that was to be given, the name John, which means graced by God. Your son will be graced by God but I need you to speak it over him. God is going to do something through this little boy's life and it is up to you to name him in accordance with what heaven is speaking. But despite all this, Zecharias responds with doubt. He said to the angel, whereby shall I know this? How is this even possible? For I am an old man and my wife is well stricken in years. And because of his doubt, the angel took away his voice, causing the priest to be mute. Because if you're going to speak doubt and if you're going to speak death over your child, Zacharias, I'm going to take your voice. I'm going to prevent you from speaking. There's too much on the line here. There's too much at stake in this next generation for you to speak like that. And so, skipping to verse 59, it came to pass. The child was born. And the eighth day arrived and they came to circumcise the child. And all the people that were going to circumcise John they're calling him Zacharias, the name of his father. Why not? And his mother answered and said, no, no, no. But he shall be called John. I, I, know what he, I, I know what I'm supposed to speak over him. He's John. And they said to her, there's nobody in your family, none of your kindred called by this name. And so they called for Zecharias. They made signs to the father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table. And he wrote and he said, His name is John. He came in agreement with what heaven was speaking. And they marveled. But verse 64 says that his mouth was opened immediately. 
And his tongue was loosed. And he spake and he praised God. Can I tell you this morning that Zacharias got his voice back when he came in alignment with what heaven was already speaking and started declaring over his son what God had spoken. God said, your son will be graced by God. And when Zechariah said, my son is John, my son will be graced by God, my son has a calling on his life, his voice came back. Because heaven favors a father like that. Heaven favors a father who is willing to speak life over his child. This is my son's name. I'm declaring my children aren't going to grow up to serve the devil be bound by all kinds of sin in this world. I'm declaring over my children that they will be saved. Thou, thou, thou shalt be saved and thy house, the Bible says. I'm claiming that promise. I'm speaking it over my children. Today I challenge a father as you stand with me. And it's not just relegated to fathers. It's not even just relegated to parents as a church family. We, we can act and we can stand in the gap as parents, as, as spiritual fathers and mothers for others. I challenge us today. Bring your voice in alignment with heaven. Start speaking life over somebody else. Start speaking promise, yes, over your family, yes, over your children. Speak it over anybody. Encourage somebody in the Lord and see what God can do. I challenge some dad today to call things out of your children. Things that are in their life that maybe are diminished or dormant. Call it out of them today. Speak to their potential. Use language of promise. Recognize and address, address their gifting with encouragement. And through affirmation, cultivate their talents and help them believe in what God has already spoken over them. We have that responsibility. We have that opportunity today. I wonder if there would be some folks that would join me around this altar. Certainly, if you are here with your family, if you're here with your spouse, even if you're just the head of a home today, maybe you're not here with a spouse, but you're coming representing your family. I wonder if you'd join me at this front. And I want us to pray together as families, as moms and dads, as couples. If your kids are in the room with you, get them to join you. Can we step out? Even if you're not here with families, I think it would be wonderful as a church family to gather around this altar today and to lay hands one upon another and pray one with another and just start declaring things and praying over our families and praying over our children, praying over our homes today. Because heaven speaks promise. Heaven speaks in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Heaven's already speaking, and he just needs somebody to come in alignment and in agreement and start declaring it over your home as well. Just a few more moments. We'll take time and we'll wait for you to make your way to the altar today. And if you've already made it, why don't you just begin to raise your hands and raise your voices now. Oh, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus.
in the name of Jesus. Can you lift your voice right now? If you're with your spouse or if you're with your family, can you take hold of them, make a point of contact, and just lift your voice with a fervency in this, in this moment right now? I wonder if somebody would speak promise over your son or your daughter. Maybe they're not here in the room right now, but can you just believe the promises of God? And can you bring your voice in alignment with what heaven has declared right now? God, right now, over every dad, over every family, God, in a world that is so wrought with confusion, God, in a world that is so steeped in sin, God, with so many things that are coming against the church, things that would oppress family units, and God, the the order of creation that you have spoken, God, I pray that you'd give us wisdom in this in this day that we are living in, in these perilous times. God, I pray that you'd give us wisdom. And Lord, I pray you'd give a boldness to a dad and to a mom right now as they lead their family in this ungodly age. Lord, I pray that you'd give them the boldness to speak life in the midst of destruction. God, to speak light in the midst of darkness. God, to pull things out and to call things out of the next generation, oh God. Lord, we align our voice with heaven now. And God, we speak restoration. God, we speak healing. God, we speak to every prodigal, to every wandering son or daughter right now. I pray in the name of Jesus, God, that we would see them come home before you come to this earth. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. God, we speak a blessing upon our homes right now. We speak a blessing upon our homes right now. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Can you just pray in the Spirit for a few moments right now? Can you lift your voice across this sanctuary and begin to speak it right now? Oh, Lord, we plead the blood. Lord, we plead the blood. For my family, I speak the holy name.